What I want to do is to think about what the average man and woman would say to you, first of all, if you ask them about how a Christian should worship. For example, if you ask somebody, when does a Christian worship? They would probably say, Sunday. And if you ask them, where does a Christian worship? They would probably say, well, in a church. And then if you say, well, how do they worship? They might say, well, there's hymns, there's prayers. Uh, maybe they read the Bible. Maybe they have a sort of sermon or a talk. Um, perhaps they have uh, what some churches call communion uh, or what we call uh, the, the bread and the wine, where they, they eat bread and drink wine in memory of Jesus. And, and that's what... That's what people's answers would be as to what a, an average person thinks about when it comes to Christian worship. But also within that framework, there are many different styles of worship as well. Uh, this can perhaps best be seen in terms of the music that different people use to, to worship God. Some people prefer a very traditional style of music. Uh, others not so. And it's perhaps a shame that when it comes to that, people are more likely to think, um, when it comes to worshipping God, what is, what is my preference? What would I prefer? Um, what style would I prefer in which to worship God? And really what I want to do this afternoon is to sort of reset the balance a little bit and think about, well, what actually is worship to God? What does worship mean to him? What is it to him? What does, what does he prefer? Um, and we'll see, we'll see from the Bible what, what God does see as worship. So turn with me to John chapter 4, which was our reading that we took. John chapter 4 has a very unusual incident that takes place. It's Jesus, a Jewish male, speaking to a Samaritan woman. Now, in the chapter itself, it tells you that uh, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Uh, these were two groups of people who didn't agree with each other and didn't get on at all. So Jesus just having a conversation with this Samaritan woman was something uh, that was a surprise. It surprised Jesus' disciples. Now, one of these disagreements uh, between the Jews and the Samaritans was about worship. Um, they professed, both of them, to worship the same God. But they did it in different ways. And this, this comes out in verse in verse 21. Well, let's start at verse 20, where the woman says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So the Samaritan woman says, you know, we've, we've chosen the place of our worship as to be you know, in Samaria, uh, whereas you, you Jews, you say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. And we, you know, we disagree about this. So, so what is it, Jesus? Uh, well, notice what Jesus says to her in verse 21. Jesus says unto her, Woman, 
Believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the key there is that Jesus starts talking about true worshippers of God. Uh, so there is a way to worship God in truth, and there is a way, presumably, that's not the right way. And Jesus says, look, there's, there's a true way to worship God, and that way is to worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, and really, that's what we're going to talk about, about what Jesus means when he says we need to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm going to first off start talking about in truth, mainly because we can get that out of the way fairly quickly, because I think that's easier. And the in spirit bit might take a bit longer to, to think about. Uh, first of all, what, what does worshipping in truth mean? Well, really, it, it means understanding who God is and what he has done. If we are to worship somebody, if we are to thank somebody, if we are to give somebody praise, it's important, first of all, that we thank the right person. And it's important that we thank them for what they've done. You know, you're going to look a bit stupid if you go up to somebody and just thank them for something that wasn't anything to do with them. Well, the, exactly the same thing goes for God, that when he is worshipped, he wants to be worshipped for who he is and for what he has done. So really Jesus, in effect, is saying to this Samaritan woman, you know, let me tell you a bit more about the God you worship. Um, notice he says in verse 22, ye worship, ye know not what. You know, you don't, you don't really fully understand what you are worshipping. Um, we Jews, we, we sort of know what we worship. At least, we've, at least we've got the God right. You know, at least we know who God is and what he has done. And so that's the first thing that Jesus says to this Samaritan woman, that you've got the truth a little bit tangled up. You need to have a, a more fuller understanding of who God is and what he has done. And in a way, the way that Jesus approaches this is similar to Acts chapter 17. Uh, could you go there with me? Acts chapter 17 is when the Apostle Paul comes to Athens. And when Paul is in Athens, it says in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, Now while, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Though full of idols was Athens and a temple on pretty much every hill. You know, every god people could name uh, was worshipped from <coughs> Athens to the extent which, to which uh, Paul noticed an altar, which he talks about in verse 23, which had an inscription to the unknown god. Now this was the Athenians just making sure that they hadn't left anyone out. 
So if there was, you know, some god who they'd forgotten about, there was this altar, just in case, you know, some god was feeling left out. And what, what Paul then says to them is, well, let me tell you a bit more about this god, because this is actually the true god, the only god. Um, so I want to talk to you about him. So, so then, God cares about the truth. Um, in the Old Testament, idolatry was a huge problem. Uh, the, the Israelites kept worshipping other gods, uh, gods which it says were no gods, because there is only one true God. Um, so God cares about the truth. Uh, and in the New Testament, we see many problems that, um, that Paul and the apostles have with false doctrine. You know, this, this shows us that if we want to worship God, he cares about us getting the truth of the matter right. So let's leave that there because I think that that's fairly easy to understand and to grasp and move on to what we think uh, worshipping God in spirit means. Now turn back to John chapter 4. You notice uh, Jesus says in verse 24, he sort of goes on to sort of explain himself somewhat. And he says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean when it, said, it says God is a spirit? Uh, in other versions, it's, uh, it's sort of mainly translated God is spirit. Um, now, a, 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 good, a good start when it comes to this word spirit is to think of it as being things that are not physical, as spiritual things being not things that we can see and touch and handle. Um, in fact, the very, the very meaning of the words, both in Greek and Hebrew, uh, have the idea of, of breath which is, which is a, something that is not physical and tangible in a sense, is it? It's not something that you can pick up um, or, or see, but we, we know it's happening and it's, it's there. Well, so that, that's a start for thinking about um, what it means by saying spirit. But when it says God is a spirit, when we look through the Bible, God is often not described physically for example you remember in exodus chapter 34 when moses asks to see the glory of god um, what does moses actually see well we don't really have time to look at the passage but actually he doesn't see an awful lot what is what is more important about that passage is what he hears because he hears the name of god being declared uh, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. He hears all these characteristics of God, a God that is merciful and gracious, but also a God of judgment as well. Uh, the, these are the ways in which God is described in the Bible. Uh, another way in which God is described 
is through symbols. For example, you go to the first chapter of Ezekiel and you see this um, really interesting symbolic vision that Ezekiel sees of this sort of stylized chariot um, with uh, wheels and these angelic figures and, uh, and it's sort of moving about here, there and everywhere. And it's a depiction of, of God's glory and of who he is. Um, but of course that also is not something literal and tangible and physical. Now that's not to say that God isn't described as having uh, eyes or, or arms. You know, in fact many times it refers to the eyes of the Lord or the, or the hand of the Lord or the arm of the Lord. But actually, when you look at those passages, it's not often in a literal way. These are more sort of metaphors to help us understand how God is, is behaving in the earth. You know, it talks about the eyes of the Lord being everywhere and looking upon everything that we're doing. Well, actually, when you look at the scripture, you tend to find that that's through the work of the angels. It isn't uh, necessarily that, that God has physical eyes everywhere. So there is something then more important than the physical when it comes to God. He is described to us not as physical, um, but more as spiritual uh, in terms of these characteristics or these symbols. So let's just park that there. That's how God is dealt with in the Bible. Also, when we look at what Jesus talks about in John's Gospel, Jesus also talks about things where the spiritual is more important than the physical. Uh, for example, uh, John chapter 2. John chapter 2 and verse, well let's read verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto Jesus, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. So here's an occasion where Jesus says something and the people around him take it literally. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the, the Jews think he's referring to the temple at Jerusalem. And they say, you're having a laugh, Jesus. This took ages. You think you can build it in three days? Uh, but of course, as it says, he wasn't speaking about that temple. He was speaking about his own body. And this then is then a theme running throughout the Gospel of John that Jesus speaks about things which people misinterpret. And they misinterpret them because they, they think he's speaking in a physical way. But actually he's speaking about spiritual things. So right into chapter 3 uh, we have Jesus speaking to Nicodemus about uh, being born again. Uh, look at verse 3 of chapter 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus missing, doesn't understand what he's saying and, and says unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? You know, Nicodemus is thinking in, in the physical sense, isn't it? But of course Jesus wasn't talking about that. Um, then in chapter 4, when, that we've read together, we've got this conversation with the Samaritan woman, we've already had a conversation all about um, water. Uh, Jesus initially starts off this conversation by asking the woman uh, for some literal, physical water. But the conversation soon gets into Jesus being a, prov a provider of um, water that he speaks about in verse 13 and says, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. And of course, the woman in verse 15 says, Excellent, please, please give me this water so that I never have to come to this well again. Now, of course, this. You know, again, she was thinking physically, wasn't she? Wasn't she? Uh, but Jesus is, is meaning in a spiritual sense. And we could go on and on. For example, in John chapter 6, um, Jesus talks about um, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Um, and the Jews were horrified by this. Because, of course, they took him literally when he was actually speaking in a spiritual manner. Um, so spiritual things are things that are not physical and not literal. And Jesus is not preoccupied with the superficial. Um, in fact, just in chapter 4, Jesus is not interested in what the Samaritan woman thinks about the place to worship. Because, you know, in verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, you Jews say in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, well, look, the time's going to come when it's not going to be either of them. Uh, so he's not interested about place. Um, Jesus is not interested in race. You know, he's not interested by who he's talking to, uh, that she's a Samaritan, or that she's a woman, um, both of which are sort of unusual things to happen, but, you know, Jesus is not preoccupied with that stuff. He's not preoccupied with food or drink either. Uh, while Jesus is having this conversation with the Samaritan woman, the disciples have gone into the town to get something for Jesus to eat. Um, and you notice that they come back in verse 31 that we didn't read together. It says, in the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. So presumably Jesus was hungry, and, but he says to them, you know, I've, I've, I've already got food to eat. And of course his disciples take him literally again, don't they? But he's, he's speaking in a spiritual sense. Did he ever get the cup of water 
that he asked the Samaritan woman for? I don't think he did, because uh, it talks. It says in verse 28, the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city. You know, Jesus is not preoccupied with all this literal stuff. There was something more important, which was you know this conversation he was having with the Samaritan woman. So then, having said all that then, what then is worshipping in spirit? Well, perhaps it's helpful to think about it the other way around. <coughs> is there a way to worship God which is all about the physical? Which is all about the image, the appearance, the, super, the, you know, the superficial stuff that sets great store in uh, grand places and spectacle and, and a sort of pomp and things like this. Well, there is, isn't there? You know, when we look around us at, uh, at all the religions of the world, they all have their way in which they can sometimes worship in a very grand way, which is all about the image. You know, whether it's Christian cathedrals, you know, vast monuments and statues and stained glass windows, or whether it's uh, the Muslims with, with Mecca. You know, if you've ever seen the scale or the size of Mecca and Medina, they're massive, they're vast. You know, and these huge hordes of people. Um, and, you know, this goes for any religion uh, across the world. Uh, when I went to Japan, I went to see some of these massive images of Buddha that they have. They're huge, you know, bigger than our house. Um, but they are superficial. They are image. Now, to some extent, Old Testament worship was similar in a sense because Old, Old Testament worship had its temple and its grandeur and its high priest with uh, priestly garments. So these things are not necessarily bad, uh, but is it, is it what God wants or is he looking for something more spiritual? Uh, turn, let's turn back to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, because Athens was really the Mecca of its day. You know, if, if there was a God you wanted to worship, there would be a temple for, uh, for that God in Athens. You know, full of grand temples, amazing statues and altars. Um, but what does Paul have to say to these people in Athens? Well, look at verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. So in, in, you know, in one fell swoop, Paul just says, all of these temples you've built, you know, God doesn't dwell in them, God doesn't live in them, and he is not worshipped by the things that you make. You know, all these uh, images that you've carved, all these amazing, amazing buildings, God is not worshipped by them. 
verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto God, uh, like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And at the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now in verse 29, Paul says, you know, we, we, are, we are the offspring, we are the creation, we are the children of God. Therefore, it's a bit silly, really, to think that God is something that we've made. We are the creation. It's not the other way around. Um, so he's sort of pointing that out. But note verse 30. What does God actually want? Well, God wants repentance. That's what he commands everybody everywhere to do. You see, he's not a hollow facade. He's not a chunk of wood or stone or anything else. He's living. You know, he's got character. He's an actual entity. Um, and he wants to be worshipped in a substantial way, uh, not a sort of feigned and half-hearted way. He also wants us, in the same way that he regards spiritual things as more important than physical, he wants us to have the same attitude as well. He wants us to have the same spirit that he does. You, you know, in Exodus chapter 34, he speaks about his mercy and his love. He wants us to have these things as well. In Galatians, it talks about the fruit of the spirit, doesn't it? which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. You know, these are the characteristics of God which he wants us to have. Um, and he wants us to worship him, not in a half-hearted way, um, but in a way that has substance to it. Uh, perhaps it's easiest to explain what this is by thinking about some practical examples. One practical example that we find in the Bible of people who weren't worshipping God in the correct way was the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. I remember what Jesus says about them, how they paid an awful lot of detail to the image and the appearance um, they had those phylacteries, those little little boxes where they kept fragments of the law and they, they bound them to their wrists and on their foreheads. And Jesus tells them off for making them broad, for making them really big so everybody can see them. Remember when Jesus tells the parable about the Pharisee and the publican and the different ways in which they prayed. And he said that the, the Pharisee prayed in the corner where everybody could see him. And he told them off for loving greetings in the marketplace, you know, hello, Rabbi, and, uh, and having the chief places in the synagogues and at feasts. That's because they love the image and love the appearance. You know, these were, these were all superficial things, whereas Jesus told them off for not caring about what he calls the weightier matters of the law, judgment, faith and mercy. So that's one way in which we see, you know, how not to worship um, God. Let's 
bring the attention to us now also. Um, so on a Sunday morning, as we have today, we break bread and we drink wine. And we do that because um, it's commanded, uh, it's a commandment from Jesus that we remember his sacrifice. Uh, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that there's a right way to do this and there's a wrong way. Uh, let's have a look at that. First, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul sort of says it's, it's not enough just to do the action, you know, just to eat the bread and drink the wine. There's, there's something more that needs to be behind it. Because he says, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 27. Wherefore, whomsoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So there's a, there's a way to do this, which is the wrong way. Um, and what's the reason for this? Well, it comes in verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread, and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So Paul says, that during the breaking of bread, if we are not seriously thinking about our lives and examining our own service to God, then we're doing it in the wrong way. We might be carrying out all the actions and, you know, on the surface of it, it looks like everything's fine and dandy, but actually there's something more important that needs to be going on. So that's, that's a way in which worship in spirit... Uh, is what God is looking for. Another example is hymns as well. You know, when we think about hymns, what is, what is God's preference when it comes to a hymn? It's almost a silly question, really. Do you think God really cares about um, the music? You know, what, what, what music did David play when he sung his hymns? Uh, what are the things that God cares about when it comes to hymns? Well, it's the spirit and the truth. The truth, first of all, let's make sure that what we're singing to God is true and accurate. Um, it is a good representation of God and is thanking him for what he has done. But the spirit as well. You know, we can be the best choir that there has ever been. And that that doesn't matter to God. Um, you know, what matters is that we we're engaged with what we're and we believe what we're actually singing. It's a good job, really, because, you know, we're not the best choir. Uh, so if that was what God wanted, then we'd all have to get singing lessons. But uh, but it's not. It's that we think about what we're singing and we mean it. Um, now, let's finally think about uh, Old Testament worship. I mentioned that um, in the Old Testament that had image and grandeur and uh, a certain amount of spectacle attached to it. Um, so, so why was that? Well, 
the purpose of all this image uh, of the, the, the tabernacle and the temple and the offerings and the, the high priest with his priestly garments, the, the purpose of all of these things was that they were meant to be symbolic. And the more we understand them, the more we dig into what those symbols mean. Um, for example, let's, let's go back to, uh, to the Psalms and Psalm 50. You know, all, the, all of these sacrifices that were demanded, um, all of these sacrifices in the law that God wanted, why did, why did he want them? Why did he want people to do them? Was it because, as other nations around thought, that God, a God needed feeding? Uh, well, no, it wasn't. Look at Psalm 50 in verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee. And thou shalt glorify me. So God is saying, you know, I, I don't demand sacrifices because I need fed. Um, what I really want for you, you know, they, they were symbols. They were to make the people think about what God did want. And notice what he does want in verse 14. Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. That's what God wanted from people. Uh, we find it again in, just over in Psalm 51, uh, verse 16. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. Thou wilt not despise. So this is, this is what God wants from worship. Um, that we worship in truth. That we get it right, that we know who God is and what he has done. And that we worship in spirit. And in a sense that means that this broadens our worship. You know, go back to our original questions that we might ask someone. You know, when do you worship God? Well, when can't we worship God? Or where do we worship God? Where can't we worship God? You know, worshipping God in spirit and in truth can be done anywhere, at any time, at any place. And the Bible helps us realise that worship of God is really any time when our actions and our thoughts are influenced by who he is and what he has done. Any time that our lives are changed by who God is is a moment of worship to God uh, and that's a wonderful thing because it helps us realize that God is a living entity you know that he's not just a solid block of 
uh, of wood or stone because this is what we would like isn't it you know if, if we wouldn't want if if we were if you were a god would you want for people just to pay you attention just on sundays and then disregard and ignore you for the rest of the week you wouldn't would you you know that wouldn't make any sense uh, but uh, and that's sometimes how people treat God. And yet this shows us what true worship of God is. Uh, that it's worshipping him every day in everything that we do. And it's a wonderful thing.